Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello. So, well, I mean, right after the election last November, we started talking to people. And we've done an awful lot of shows over the past, well, six months of this administration, plus the, the, the interregnum uh, after the election. We've done an awful lot of shows where powerful, compelling voices have joined us on the show to talk about various aspects of this strange time in the life of America. And I, I think we knew from the beginning, too, that uh, although we have just cherished the work of some of the terrific reporters from the Washington Post and the New York Times and other places who've joined us to help us understand the news better and help us understand their reporting better. Um, we also knew that we were going to need to talk, I think, to uh, other kinds of people, uh, people who could show us other ways of looking at things, people who could uh, either make us laugh or make us think or, or show us um, ways in which these are not questions restricted to 2016 and 2017, but questions that have, have run through the course of history in other places. Uh, we were going to have to talk to creative people and people who had access to their souls. Uh, so we did all that. <laughs> <laughs> and we've talked to some amazing people. I mean, this has been a very hard time to be an American in a lot of ways, but we've just talked to some amazing people over the last, let's say, eight months. And what we thought we would do today, it's about six months into the Trump administration. Um, we had uh, this day uh, to plan for, and I finally said to producer Jonathan McNichol, what if, we, what if we went back and talked to some of the people who impressed us the most? What if we went and talked to, I mean, we can't talk to all of them because we have talked to a lot of incredible people, but what if we went and talked to some of the people who really had interesting prophetic uh, things to say and, and just found out how they're feeling right now? So the person, I think the first person we talked to after the election was Azar Nafisi, the author of the national bestseller Reading Toledo in Tehran, uh, and, and the public, uh, Republic of Imagination, America in Three Books. Um, and uh, we got a tremendous response from our—I sound like Trump. We got a tremendous response from our listeners that day, but we did. I mean, people really thought um, that at a time when they were very worried and feeling rather lost, that Azar Nafisi had things to say that they could take to their bosoms and at least comfort themselves a little bit or maybe plan for the future. The thing that stayed with me uh, on that day was the, that uh, she said, that the best way to resist authoritarianism is to become more completely yourself, um, which is a statement I've turned over in my head um, 100, 200 times in, in the last eight months. So we wanted to begin the show with Azar Nafisi, and she's back with us. Welcome back to the show. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you. So I'm going to um, play uh, you to you uh, and let you hear what you were saying on November 9th. Here we go. I felt for a long time that these times are very dangerous times, and I'm not trying to, um, you know, become an aspirin <laughs> to our woes, but I also feel um, this sense of excitement that this is a moment of transition, and it is up to us, 
ordinary people to be able to take advantage and change it the way we imagine it should be. This is a country of grassroots, from the war of revolution to civil war to civil rights movement, women's movements, gays' movement, all of it came from we the people. And for me, as an immigrant, that is what matters. I never for one moment uh, thought that I have to go to the elite. I always felt that this is my chance in this country uh, to imagine and to fight for that, uh, for what I imagine with other people. So great eloquence uh, on that day. Is it still essentially the way that you feel now, Azar, as though the people themselves have their destinies in their hands if they can find a way to exercise that? Oh, definitely. I I, I still feel that way, and I still feel both um, at times the despair as well as the excitement. Uh, That goes with the challenge. I think one of the problems we were facing uh, before uh, November was the fact that um, we had become a little bit too complacent. Uh, We were taking too much for granted the values and the principles and uh, thinking that um, we were born uh, uh, free and we would just remain free without having to fight for it while freedom like happiness needs to be pursued and um, fought for every moment of every day. Um, So I feel that is what is happening. I also feel that Mr. Trump um, has brought to the surface um, all the problems that this country has been facing and the flaws. And uh, people are responding to it by, in fact, becoming more themselves. Uh, Look at how they reacted spontaneously um, uh, to the the immigration uh, problem that uh, Mr. Trump and his administration created for us. Look at the judges. Just by being judges, they have resisted um, this um, attack and assault Uh, on on our uh, values and on the founding principles of this country. Look at the journalists you were talking to. Uh, So this is a time of reckoning, and uh, reckoning is always a good time. On the other hand, fatigue can be a problem, too. And certainly uh, as Iran went through uh, its revolution and the aftermath, um, there are people who hold power and people who seem anyway to have less power. Those are the people that we're talking about right now, the average everyday grassroots people. Um, You can get worn down pretty easily, I think, if you ultimately feel as though the keys to power lie someplace else. No, no, you're you're completely right, and uh, that is actually one of the things that worries me. Um, for example, I participated both in the uh, magnificent women's march and and the science march, and I think that now more than ever is important for all the uh, various um, forces within this country to get together and support themselves, not just themselves but others. Uh, and and it can get worn down, and we can't constantly protest in the streets. So I think that the most important thing is to have a strategy. And that strategy has to be not constantly and continuously reacting to Mr. Trump, because that is his job, to distract us and to divert us from defending our values rather than responding to him. And for that, we need leadership and we need to strategize. Uh, And so I I agree with you that we can be worn down if we constantly respond to him. 
uh, without um, putting forward our own agenda and forcing him to come to our domain rather than we going into his. I liked what you said before, Azar, about the fact, I I think that you were suggesting that it's not as though Donald Trump uh, appeared in our midst like Mephistopheles with a big poof and a flash and and, and also materialized at the same time a whole set uh, of discontents uh, and uh, and disgruntlements and and resentments that hadn't existed before. This is very much in your Republic of of Imagination book, right? It's not as though he made all these things up. These things exist. Existed, he became their messenger? That, that exactly is what it is. He brought to the surface, and that is what the Islamic Republic did to us. Donald Trump became the distorted mirror of what we were becoming. And I think that now we're looking into that mirror and we don't like what we see. And, and we should look into the mirror and we should not see him as simply the other we should also see him uh, as the person who represents so many things in this society that are wrong with it, especially, especially with the elite, especially with those people who are now enabling him and, and, and encouraging him and thinking that they can rein him in. They don't understand that um, they are dealing with, uh, I don't like to use the word evil, but with the flaws within themselves. Uh, and not just with him. And this path of enabling Donald Trump um, does not have a good end. So it's great to hear your voice again, and it's maybe it's like a doctor checkup. We just have to call you every six <laughs> no, months and see how things so are going. It's wonderful to talk to you. Well, I'd like to end just with, with just maybe having you emphasize a little bit what I think you're saying, which is that you can decide that you're in the business of every day knocking down something that is happening that troubles you and outrages you, and that's a natural human response. But another possible response is to ask yourself, what's my real dream? What's the dream? Yes. What's the set of principles that goes in the place? of this thing that's bothering me now? That, that is exactly it. You know, uh, I remember back in the, the days of Islamic Republic, we were having lunch with our colleagues, and one colleague said, um, dealing with the Islamic Republic is like playing chess with a monkey. Uh, in the middle of the game, the monkey uh, swallows your queen, and then what will you do? We are in this situation right now where if we just play Donald Trump's game, he will be continuing to swallow the chess pieces, and we're not good at it. We have to play our own game. We have to support and to defend with our lives, if possible, our values, the fundamentals upon which this country was built on. Uh, And that is the important thing, not Mr. Trump. Please do not give him more value than he deserves. He is not the the focus. We are, and our values are the focus. Well, that's a beautiful place to end, uh, although I think I'm going to get emails from monkeys who are going to be offended by that comparison. I think a lot of them play <laughs> yes, chess. I'm very... so sorry, because I really like monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's Arne I Fisi. just don't like to play chess with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, they, they don't all cheat. Um, so uh, I'm the author, obviously, of reading Lolita in Tehran and the Republic of Imagination, America in Three Books, is Arne Fisi. Thanks Thank for joining us. Thank you so us. much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, so, um, so we, we're going to talk to, did I say at the beginning who we're going to talk to? I'm not sure I did, actually. So you just heard Azar Nafisi in just a moment. Margaret Sullivan has probably been on the show as much as 
anybody in connection with the events of the last eight months. Uh, She's the Washington Post's media columnist. Uh, We're going to go to her in just a second, and then you're going to hear from uh, Sarah Kenzior, uh, who's an op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail uh, and the U.S. correspondent for the Dutch news outlet, The Correspondent. I would say if anybody, uh, one, one of the people whose appearance made a huge or occasioned a huge reaction was Sarah. She has perhaps the most dire vision of what's happening right now that we have aired towards the end because we can't send you into Thursday night in a total funk. Uh, Henry Alford, uh, who's an investigative humorist and who's also been with us uh, many times and is an expert on manners. You know, I have really, in some ways, the importance of manners have been driven home to me uh, in in ways that I would not have expected. So, um, yeah, Margaret's ready to go. I think I'm going to put her on the air. Greg from Winstead, I know you're angry. I want to get you on the air. I mean, you're angry at me. I get that. Uh, I want to get you on the air as soon as possible. Uh, let me just talk to Margaret Sullivan uh, first. The rest of you, if you do want to call in, the number is 860-275-7266. And now from the Washington Post, it's Margaret Sullivan. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much, Colin. Great to be back with you. So I'm going to do the same thing with you that I did with Azar Nafisi. I'm going to play you back to you. This is November 21st, so just a few weeks after the election. Uh, here's what you had to say. One of the things that journalism is supposed to do is to hold the powerful accountable. And at this, in this strange time when we feel as though journalism is both under fire uh, for, for good and not so good reasons, one of the things it can do best is to go to its kind of core role, which is to be the watchdog for public officials uh, particularly, but certainly for big business and to do stories that actually represent the public by, you know, following the money, um, holding what people say up against what they do, um, comparing what they have said with what they're saying and doing now, all of those sort of accountability things that amount to watchdog journalism, which is kind of the best thing we do after all. So, Margaret, I remember that conversation well, and you had been writing at that time that what the press should do is do its job, do the job the way the press has always understood it to be, stop trying to pretend that, um, or stop trying to pretend is maybe a little bit too prescriptive, but but don't imagine that just because of the extraordinary nature of this presidency, your job has changed. Your job is still the same. Maybe the material you, you tackle and report is different. I, I don't know. Are you still pretty comfortable with, with that notion? Yes, I am. I, I, you know, my boss, Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post, said it well somewhere a, a couple of months ago. Um, you know, in the context of the president, you know, saying that the, the, the news media is the, some of it, is the enemy of the American people. Um, and Marty said, you know, we don't want to go down the road of setting ourselves up as an adversary. Um, and he said memorably, we're not at war, we're at work. And the, um, the news media at its best in the past uh, six or eight months has been at work uh, effectively um, telling the story of what's happening in the White House and what's happening in the country. Um, not perfectly, <laughs> um, certainly, but but I think that it's done its job extraordinarily well. And I think we're seeing a golden era for accountability journalism. 
um, that is, you know, it's very heartening. And the wonderful thing is that people are recognizing it. I just read uh, that the New York Times has passed its 2 million uh, digital subscribers mark, which is a remarkable milestone. The Washington Post's uh, subscriptions are, are way up, and, you know, places, other places, whether it's ProPublica or the Committee to Protect Journalists, people are coming forward and saying, we really need you, and thank you, and here's my support in the form of my credit card. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's heartening in many ways, and I, I'm glad to see it. So um, uh, I agree, by the way, 100%. And I, as I think I've told you before, I paid $99 out of my own pocket just so I don't miss a word that Thank you, you that. or Phil Bump or <laughs> Phil Rucker or anybody writes there. So um, um, so Wednesday I was on the air on a morning show and halfway through the show um, we were informed by the producers that uh, the president had issued or uh, issued a statement or a tweet, as we know, we have to say, yes. saying that he was going to ban transgender people from the military. And it was sort of a, the whole thing was a political roundtable. And one of the other people said, so what do we think about that? And I said, you know, I, I'm not Donald Trump. I don't know what I think about it, first of all, because I haven't had time. And also, I don't know what a tweet about this means. I remember Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 1993. It was a pretty complicated military policy. It took a lot, lot of review and discussion. I have no idea how the government works anymore. But but so th- but this, this is a real structural change, I think, Margaret, that things come from the president as tweets and appear to have the force of a presidential statement. That's right. And, you know, this is something brand new, um, although it, now it seems as though it's, it's been forever. But, um, it, you know, the president has had only one true press conference since taking office, which is very unusual. Uh, by this point of a presidency, previous presidents, previous recent presidents have had, you know, three or six or, or seven or eight press conferences. So, so he's not doing that. And the way he is choosing to communicate even major policy changes like this one is through, you know, the 140-character limit on Twitter. So, um, and that's, that is, I guess, his prerogative. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's the best thing. And even, even Trump's um, strongest supporters would like to see him tweeting less, uh, I have read. And that resonates with everything I've ever heard from people. Um, but something that's particularly troubling is that the president does block people on Twitter, and if he's using, you know, including journalists, if he's using Twitter as a way to communicate policy, it seems as though there may be some First Amendment issues with then saying, but you can't, you can't have access to it. Now, obviously, everybody, you know, the minute it's said, it gets distributed, but I still think that there's a, there's a, uh, philosophy there, or uh, um, you know, a, a larger problem, and it kind of speaks to the whole relationship fraught as it is between the president and the news media, which has been just you know a huge story that I've been following and one that is not going anywhere. Right, and and, and we're sort of back to that whole question of how much of that story is one of the important stories. In a way, we don't want that to be the important story. We want the, the story that's important should be what the press is trying to report right now. But it, this has become, you know, one of the five acts of this Shakespearean drama to a certain degree. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, it is, it, you know, President Trump seems to need and want um, a 
foil, an enemy, someone to react against. And, you know, he still drags out Hillary Clinton uh, or President, former President Obama as those foils. But, you know, they're not in power anymore, so they don't sort of work all that well, although he gives it a shot. Um, the news media, though, hasn't gone away, and it has been a thorn in his side in many ways. And so um, it's a, he needs an enemy. We make a good one. And so I think that is at the core of what's going on. But you are absolutely right. It has been one of the main sort of story arcs of the past few months. And, it, and it, you know, just, just an amazing, if you can step back from it for just a bit, you know, we've really never seen anything like this before. We've seen presidents who don't like the press, plenty of them, maybe all of them. But we've rarely, it, we have never seen one who has, um, who has, has declared and acted out his enmity as much as President Trump has. Um, last question. I mean, obviously, one of the new developments in the relationship between President Trump and the press is the arrival of Mr. Scaramucci, uh, a, a new kind of figure. It is a little bit like you're watching some kind of primetime drama or sitcom, and they've introduced a new character. Uh, and, and he's and, and he's the mooch. Di- the mooch, and he's there, and he's different, and and you know he's turning cameras back on when cameras are turned back off. And in one sense, is that the White House press corps—they're only humans, and and uh, in some ways, they're going to react to this guy in certain ways, uh, maybe even ways that that very much represent the desire uh, of President Trump to have maybe a different spokesman who can who can charm where, where other spokespeople haven't charmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And he does seem to be, you know, everybody was, the word that was being used to describe him was smooth. Well, smooth is okay. Um, let's see if he tells the truth. I think that would be a better um, a better yardstick to see what kind of a communications uh, officer he ends up being. Is he going to be able to communicate the president's point of view, or is he going to be like Sean Spicer, who actually said multiple times, I can't speak for the president, so you are actually his spokesman, so you should be able to speak for him. Um, so, you know, it's it still remains to be seen whether Scaramucci will be um, an effective uh, spokesperson, and whether he'll be a truthful one, which is, I think, a requirement and a, a very challenging one, given that the Trump administration is prone to lying and, and falsehoods of all sorts. He's a little bit the opposite of Spicer that way. The other day, I think it was with Jake Tapper, he had that exchange where he said, uh, you know, somebody at the White House was suggesting to me that, you know, really, if the if the Russians did this hack, you'd never know it because they're, they're, they're that good. And, and Jake Tapper said, well, I don't know who said that to you and he, he said what if, what if it's the president it's the president how about the president <laughs> right. right he may be going getting out in front of it in a way we haven't seen before well he does certainly seem to have the president's ear and seems to have amassed a fair amount of influence very very quickly so uh, he's gonna as you say he is a new character in the in the reality show that is our reality All right. Well, Margaret, it's been fun to be in our little corner of this reality show off and on during the the Trump administration. I'm sure we'll speak again. I hope soon. Okay. Thanks for having me. Margaret Sullivan from The Washington Post, where she writes about the media. All right. Poor Greg has been sitting there uh, waiting uh, to talk to me. Uh, I want to say once again, uh, the number here is 860-275-7266. We'd like to get some phone calls on the air. Uh, We often don't get time to do it. 860-275-7266. Hi, Greg. Hey, Colin. Every show, Colin, an attack on Trump, every show. What is it that is so, I mean, honestly, what is it that's so controversial about what Trump did yesterday with the military? 
I mean, think about just the cost of that. People are going to be joining just to get like a $200,000 operation. Is it so hard to understand why Trump did that? It's not the end of the world, Colin. It's just a normal decision. That's all I have to say. It is not, it's not the end of America as you know it. I, I never suggested it was either one of those things. Um, I, I, the, the only thing that I would say was this seems to be not a particularly big problem. Uh, there are particularly big problems happening right now. This seemed more like a sudden distraction. It wasn't. It didn't appear to be part of any kind of lengthy process to discuss or debate it. It seemed to be something he just tweeted out kind of in a change-the-subject way. It's much more precipitous than the way these things are ordinarily handled. But I wasn't suggesting, I don't think I ever said anything about it being the end of the world or the end of America or anything. You guys, you act like it's the end of the world, though, I, I don't <laughs> think I ever acted that way. I'm sorry. You act like it's the end of the world. All right. I'll take your word for it. Uh, It's not the end of the world. It's not even the end of the show. We're about halfway through. Uh, We're going to take a little break. We'll come back. If if you want to hear the end of the world, (laughs) wait till you meet Sarah. You're going to hear the end of the world. That's what the end of the world sounds like. When the president talks to God, do they drink near beer and go play golf? While they pick which countries to invade, which Muslim souls still can be saved? I guess God just calls a spade a spade when the president talks to God. When the president talks to God, does he ever think that maybe he's not? Right. Uh, As I say, uh, what we're doing today is revisiting some of the people that we talked to in the early days, either right after the Trump election or after the Trump inauguration. It's now six months into the Trump administration. Um, So we've over the course of this eight month time, we really have talked to some very potent and exciting voices. Um, I would say one of the voices that we got the most response to, uh, particularly from people saying, well, have her on again, have her on again, uh, was Sarah Kenzior, uh, an op-ed columnist for The Globe and Mail, also a correspondent for the Dutch news outlet, The Correspondent. Uh, and so we are having Sarah Kenzior on again. But Sarah, before I even ask you a question, I'll take you back in time. Uh, this was also on the November 21st show. That must have been a very exciting show. This is uh, you back then. The foundation of our republic is at stake, and I, I don't say that lightly at all. I've been studying this my entire career. If you look at other scholars of authoritarian or fascist states, they are all very alarmed. They are all recognizing the whole pattern, and we're coming to terms with this fact that we're more fragile than than we thought. Um, you know, obviously we've had a very hard like last 15 years. We've had two wars. We've had a, a giant recession from which a lot of us haven't recovered, and it's made us extremely vulnerable for an authoritarian demagogue to come in and undermine our liberty, our safety, and our freedom. And we don't have time to sort of see how this plays out. We really need to apply pressure to our officials now to investigate, uh, you know, Trump's corruption, to investigate his tax returns, to investigate his relationship with Russia and other foreign states and his investment in other foreign states, and see whether he has, you know, already broken the law. Um, this is essential. You know, I don't, I love this country. I love this country so much. I'm sorry. And I just don't want to see, I don't want to see this happen because I've been to countries that are authoritarian states and I've seen that repression of freedom. You know, a lot of us came here to America to escape situations like this. You know, we came here for sanctuary and for safety. And so, you know, I, I'm very serious um, that, I, that I, I want everyone to work hard to try to prevent this, because the only way I think that's possible is if we really look out for each other. 
So, Sarah, welcome back. You had some emotions that came bubbling up uh, on that particular day. Uh, but a lot of the things that you said uh, with a little bit of changes of tense uh, would be essentially true of this moment. So how's your mood these days? Is, uh, is it in any way not as bad as you thought it would be? No, it's as bad as I as I thought it would be. Uh, I'm not sure my mood is irrelevant. I mean, it's, no. it's relevant to that. Um, you know, what's important, as I said back then, uh, is that people continue to push back, uh, whether you're an elected official, whether you're a citizen uh, looking out for other citizens. Uh, that's the only way that we can get out of this, is that we don't accept it. Um, I think it's reasonable to expect autocracy, to expect uh, authoritarian behavior, but that's different than accepting it. Um, and I think that, that people do understand that now that they've been practice over the last Six months. Uh, you know, so in, in many ways, I'm, I'm really pleased uh, with how people, um, you know, regular people have responded and obviously extremely displeased at the behavior of the government. Um, one of the things you talked about at the time was the relationship with Russia and uh, investments in other countries, involvements with other countries. Obviously, the Russia story has never gone away. It has done quite the opposite. It has uh, expanded and the stain of it has darkened and spread out across the blotter. Uh, and uh, it, it's obviously heading somewhere. We don't really know where. Robert Mueller probably has a clearer idea of where than any living human being right now, but and he may not really ultimately know. But have you begun to think, particularly as you read about things like, for example, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, President Trump is upset with Jeff Sessions. One reason for that probably is that Sessions can't do what Donald Trump might like him to do, would be, which would be to fire Robert Mueller because of the recusal. Uh, we know we, we, we have reporting that the uh, Trump administration is looking at the issues of pardons. Are you starting to wonder like how this story ends? Um, yeah, to some degree, obviously, I think everyone is wondering that, um, and I don't think it's going to, you know, end well. Um, I think even if he is removed from office, we're going to be dealing with a lot of political instability. We're probably going to be dealing with uh, unrest. But you know, at the heart of the Russian interference case uh, is corruption at the executive level, and Trump is this node of corruption. You know, linking him to oligarchs in Russia and plutocrats in the United States and you know, abusing executive powers to enhance his wealth and, you know, his children's wealth, you know, we've put in the office um, despite, you know, rules uh, against that. And so I do think ultimately his removal uh, would be beneficial to the country. Um, you know, this is a very deep and complicated case. Um, we knew a lot of the basics of it before the election. It wasn't well covered, but it was covered. You know, we knew of his involvement. Uh, we knew of his financial ties. We knew of his history with people like Paul Manafort and, you know, and Roger Stone and with, uh, you know, various oligarchs who'd invested in his businesses. Um, but we didn't know the full extent of it. Uh, and I think now that people do know that, they realize, you know, the depth of trouble that we're in and that, you know, Trump will go to any extent he can to preserve his power. I don't think he's actually angry at Jeff Sessions being. I think he's angry at the fact that the attorney general is not supposed to act as his personal attorney and has limited powers uh, in that capacity. And when an autocratic leader, you know, as he is, is cornered like this, uh, they often lash out. You know, they often resort to very violent tactics, um, you know, very oppressive tactics. And so, you know, for the short term, I'm concerned about that. For the long term, uh, you know, I do have you know, faith in, in the ability of the U.S. to rebuild, uh, but it's going to be a very hard road. 
I, I expect Robert Mueller to be fired before September 15th. Um, and and I, I assume that the way that that works now will be similar to the Saturday Saturday Night Massacre of the of the Nixon years, um, uh, that uh, Sessions can't do it because of the refusal. Rosenstein, who's next in line, has said he would only do it for cause. In other words, if uh, if Mueller had actually done something, would occasion dismissal for anybody, uh, which is hugely unlikely. I assume once again, as Nixon did, Nixon just went down and through the the hierarchy till he found Robert Bork, who actually did the deed. I, I assume something like that may happen. Either that or he'll have a different attorney general, an acting attorney general, put in very quickly. But I do wonder what happens on that day. You know, who who responds? I guess we're assuming and hoping that Congress, in a very bipartisan way, responds. Uh, I don't know. We'll just react to that. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what Congress will do and how they'll respond. I mean, people on both sides of the aisle have said that, you know, that is a, a red line for them. You have everyone from, you know, Adam Schiff to, to Lindsey Graham saying that, and those are people who have been, you know, deeply involved with uh, examining the Russian interference case from the beginning. So we, we've seen how the GOP has operated. We've seen that they've been, you know, acting as, as Trump's loyal lackeys. We've seen Trump threatening them. You know, he's certainly uh, threatening uh, Murkowski in, in Alaska. And, you know, he, he does things that I think, uh, you know, genuinely frighten people. And I think there's also, you know, opportunism, careerism, uh, the desire to pass policies like Trump care under the wire, what, you know, while this chaos is, you know, happening that it helps facilitate that. There are all these things going on at once. Um, and that makes it somewhat hard to predict uh, what they'll do. Um, you know, one other thing that, that's covered somewhat, but I think not enough, is the fact that Russia has not only interfered in our election, but has hacked our infrastructure on numerous occasions. They hacked the State Department in 2014. They hacked the DOD in 2015. And they recently attacked uh, and hacked our nuclear plants, um, you know, which connect to the power grids. And they did similar actions in Ukraine, uh, causing mass blackouts. And I just can't imagine that that kind of thing is not on the minds of people in the Intel Committee or of people in Congress. Um, I'm surprised to some extent it's not discussed more openly. Maybe they hold back, you know, because it's a fairly terrifying prospect. But, you know, there are times where I wonder if that threat um, is something that, that is, you know, uh, shaping the behavior of people uh, working in the government. Yeah, actually, it, it, it did come up a bit in, I, I feel as though it was in Sessions' testimony. It was John McCain and some other people brought up exactly the thing you're talking about. It's the only time I've ever heard officials talk about it. Um, right, at, the, at Sessions' hearing, right. that's when that was. And it was very out of the blue. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought that that was notable, that McCain kind of interjected on this other topic, um, you know, and he went last. He knew he would get a lot of attention, you know, for saying that. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I thought that that was, I, I thought people should take note of that at the time. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, hope that we get to talk again before the lights go out, uh, Sarah Kenzie, <laughs> or, uh, and that the lights come back on, too. But thank you so much for talking to us today. Oh, thank you for having me back. All right. One of the really, uh, one of the people, people, uh, one of the guests that people have really responded to uh, that we've had over the last eight months, and that's Sarah Kenzior. All right. We're going to take a call or two before we go to break. Uh, I, I, I promise you, well, I think I can promise you that Henry Alford will get you to laugh even after all this stuff. But here's uh, Greg from West Hartford. Hi, Greg. How's it going? Good. Just wanted to say two quick things. Uh, that one, the um, uh, openly transgender policy of the Department of Defense was something that they studied and vetted and then uh, implemented. 
Um, not something I, I would imagine a few tweets can undo immediately. Uh, and two, that as the parent of someone who is transgender, uh, I understand, as everyone should, uh, including that other Greg, <laughs> that uh, to be transgender is not to seek an operation. Right. Um, that has nothing to do with being transgender. Many transgender people don't opt to um, change themselves physically. It's a state of being. Right. Um, that's a really great uh, point, Greg, um, uh, to the extent that there are uh, associated medical costs. Many people have cited the statistic, I think it's in the Military Times, that uh, is it $84 million that are spent for erectile dysfunction uh, drugs by the military, and something like a tenth of that uh, spent on any kind of transgender medical concerns. So, but you, it's a great point that as our understanding of gender fluid, fluidity these days does not uh, automatically mean uh, an operation uh, or any kind of medical treatment. Uh, that you know, beyond what anybody else would get. So a uh, great point there. Um, I, I think I can take one more call, right? I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to just go crazy here. Here's uh, John in Avon. Hi, John. You're on the air. How you doing, Colin? Good. Great show as usual. Uh, I kind of uh, I'm burning my Reuben. I'm trying to make it launch multitasking, but I, I guess I'd fit right into Trump's cabinet in that regard. Um, the uh, distraction that he lives by... Uh, that kind of Machiavellian methodology. Do you think that there's a, a chance that it could go to uh, like North Korea and starting saber rattling there to really when this guy gets is going to get cornered? You know, and then the other follow up is, I think impeachment is uh, imminent. And um, once Mueller, Mueller's uh, report comes out about his financial dealings. He, you think that uh, what's the deal with Mike Pence? I don't know much about him, and uh, is it possible that you know uh, Trump was thought he was hijacking the Republican Party when actually the reverse is true um, with Pence waiting in the wings? Is he implicated in all and in, in, in anything dealing with? Uh, investigations. Um. Well, so Pence has been mentioned much, much less often uh, in these kinds of contexts, uh, and and often as the guy who didn't know something, right? He's the guy who didn't who didn't know uh, about Mike Flynn, for example. Um, I, I, would, I would just quickly say this, that I don't think we know at all what's going to happen um, after the Mueller report. I also don't know what's in the Mueller report. Uh, neither does Bob Mueller right now. Uh, we don't know how long that report is going to take. Um, uh, however, I mean, you look at all the other rustlings and signs, uh, I think I, 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 first of all, I should say, I, I put out the date September 15th a little while ago. I don't want you to think that's some kind of watershed. It's actually when I'm planning to go on vacation. And I sort of pushed back my vacation thinking, well, I should be as a journalist around if, in fact, this is going to come to a head, uh, if he is going to, in some way, try to get rid uh, of uh, Robert Mueller, which I, I do think is the more likely course than than the investigation staying its course and a full report coming out. And I have no idea how long that report would take to prepare. Probably a long time. Um, but if he does, uh, as seems to be, uh, he clearly has trial ballooned this idea. I think that's the next hurdle that we have to cross, the next huge hurdle in this particular narrative that we have to cross. And I don't know what that day is going to be like, as I said to Sarah. Anyway, all right. So we've got Henry ready to go. Scott's calling in from Danbury. I bet I can get everybody on the air who needs to get on the air. Our number, 860-275-7266. See you on the other side of this break. Continuity. I pity the country. 
pity the state and the mind of a man who thrives on hate. When you hire somebody known as the Mooch and it's considered an upgrade, you've got a problem. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from our intern, Tim Cohn. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eric Trump. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to Dunkirk. And now, back to Colin. Um, I also want to tell you that on Sunday, I will be uh, on stage at the Schubert Theater at 3 p.m. in New Haven with a guy who, like me and Henry Alford, started out in the world of humor and comedy and, frankly, just couldn't hack it uh, and had to try something else. He's now U.S. Senator Al Franken. Uh, so Al Franken, giant of the Senate, will be joining me joining me on stage at the Schubert for a conversation. This is all sponsored by R.J. Julia, the great independent bookseller uh, here in Connecticut. And I guess on Long Island now, too. Uh, so uh, and tickets are available. And you can just get, And I think when you buy a ticket, you get a book and you can maybe get it signed. I assume maybe it's something like that. Don't don't hold me to the specifics, but just go to the Schubert box office. Like if you just type in my name and Al Franken's, but type in Al Franken's name first because he's more important. Uh, and then um, Schubert or something. I don't know. You'll get it and, and you can buy tickets and we'd love to see you there. Um, so uh, meanwhile, uh, the back here in the world of some of us who are still writing humor. Uh, Henry Alford uh, joins us now. Uh, before I let Henry speak, and I should say Henry uh, Alford is an investigative humorist and the author of Would It Kill You to St Stop Doing That? A Modern Guide to Manners. Uh, way back in March, we sort of tried to game out March of 2016, I should say, we tried to game out what a Trump reality would be like. So we called Henry uh, and asked him for his take. That's Here's what that sound like, sounded like. So I talked to, I think, nine different therapists, and they all said the same thing. They all said he's a remarkably good illustration of the narcissistic personality disorder. The three traits are grandiosity, a lack of empathy, and an expectation that others will recognize your superiority. Hard, hard to argue there. And hard to argue. Yeah. One therapist even said that he's archiving video clips because there is no better example of narcissism. So that when uh, this particular therapist teaches narcissistic personality disorder, he or she can just say, roll them. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, in the news that might not have been noticed, um, Sharon Begley is the only person I've seen report this. The American Psycho Psychoanalytic Association recently, it's a 3,500 member psychoanalytic group, recently lifted the ban on diagnosing Donald Trump from afar. They said, OK, this time, forget about that Goldwater rule. Go ahead. You can knock yourselves out. Uh, Henry Alfred is back here with us. And, and I don't know, Henry, you just listened to yourself. Um, I, it's hard to poke holes in anything you said. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. No, but we've had six months to look at sort of granular examples of this narcissism. And, you know, so many narcissists are fueled by what's called the narcissistic wound, where they didn't have their emotional needs met as children. And so subsequently all their interactions with adults are about trying to fulfill those emotional needs and you know if you look at someone like Trump even the way he speaks uh, it kind of gets at this idea that thing he does where he blurts one word the liar bad 
um, you know, it took me six months to realize that that sounds exactly like an audience member yelling out suggestions at a comedy improv show, <laughs> right? It's like pork chop, diarrhea, gy- gynecologist, um, and that fits in per- it totally with this idea of the narcissistic wound because, you know, impulsive behavior, self-obsession, uh, narcissists, you know, they hate the process of consensus building because there's a potential for opposition and delay. So, um, Henry, there's so many uh, areas that we can talk to you about, but I know you're a busy man and you have patients to see and all that kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> the, the, you know, as an expert on manners, one thing I, I have been, I mean, we're going to do a whole show on handshakes and we're going to have you back on there for it. But could we just do a mini version of that show right now? I mean, handshakes have become this really complicated thing. He won't shake hands with Angela Merkel. He shakes hands too long with Macron. And now his, his, um, his uh, newest proxy, Scaramucci, he does all these weird things with handshakes. He, he was being interviewed by a BBC journalist. He shook her hand. He shook it too long. Then he turned it loose. He tried to do a handshake plus hug. Then he shook her hand again. What's going on with the handshakes, Henry? Oh, man, I know that one with the, with the BBC. I, I've had relationships that didn't last as long as that <laughs> handshake. That was. And then did you notice he also, um, Scaramucci also touched his heart at one point to denote authenticity. Right. During that interview, it's like he's won a Grammy or something. Um, he's mooching it, you know. That's how you. He's. He. It's. It's. It, I, I. I did sort of have the impression that in the middle of that extra long handshake, that maybe Anthony needed to return to the administration office, the administrative offices of Westworld for a tune-up. Um, that it just. Yeah, there's something kind of calculated going on there. There's also there was a lot in that interview. He used the uh, term front stabbing. Talk about an Alfordian frontier. That <laughs> it's true. No, absolutely. But the other thing that that handshake put me in mind of, and this will sound counterintuitive, but in the animal world, there's a thing called a startle display, and that's where a bird will, like, um, puff up his his neck feathers. um, And it's a distraction technique, which allows the animal to escape a potential predator. So although he's actually, yes, reaching out and grabbing those those members of the media, I think it's because he's actually trying to get away. He's trying to startle them so that he can, you know, get out of the spotlight. Um, Henry Alford, uh, it's great to talk to you. We're going to bring you back for the Handshake Show. Uh, the author Yay! of Would It Kill You to Stop Doing? I can't believe there's not a sequel given everything we've been through right now. But <laughs> Would It Kill You to Stop Doing That? One, I'm going to call it with uh, your hands. Yes. <laughs> A Modern Guide to Manners. Thanks very much, Henry Alford. Thanks so much, Colin. All right. I I, uh, wanted to get a few calls on the air. Let me see if I can get two. Uh, We'll start with Emily in Durham. Hi, Emily. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I just wanted to call in response to the the caller maybe a half an hour ago who was saying, what's the big deal? He's the president. He just made a a decision about transgender. I don't understand. Um, You know, I'm calling as a former Air Force officer and a Republican, actually, and I have a huge problem with this president and how he's going about implementing democracy. You know, to think that he could just say a statement, 
over Twitter and not, you know, not do things in a collaborative way and, and think that, you know, people will just fall in line and follow that is, is hugely troubling to me. And, um, and it's hugely troubling to me that there's people that don't have a problem with that, you know, independent of how you feel about whether transgender should or should not be in the military, you should have a problem with not having a voice and, and just letting somebody go and tell you the way your country is going to be. Um, right. Great so. point. Great point. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, yeah, I didn't. And despite what Greg thinks, I didn't say it was the end of the world. The end of the world was like November 8th, I think. But anyway, uh, we're just living in the aftermath. Here's Scott in Danbury. Hi, Scott. Hi, how are you doing? Good. Good. So, yeah, Trump is a narcissist. I know a little bit about that uh, myself, having been in therapy for a while. He's, you know, he's a xenophobe and a misogynist and a silver spoon. So, okay, uh, you know, about his decision-making. Look, the, the transgender issue, my niece is transgender. I understand it's important to that segment. But in American government politics, it's kind of a smaller issue compared to the real stuff that we're not talking about, like corruption in D.C. It's rampant. Uh, these people are being blackmailed and put under, you know, probably some kind of neocon, NWO, whatever the cabal is that's running the world, whatever you want to call them. Um, the government has lost touch with the people. I don't feel represented. I feel that the feeling in the country is it's not towards civil war, like overthrowing the government, because there's that much animosity towards the crimes that these people are doing, and they're not being held accountable. Now, Trump said he was going to go after these people and drain the swamp, and I hope he does, but, yeah, and it remains to be seen. It still looks pretty swampy. Yeah, but it still looks pretty swampy, doesn't it, Scott? I'm sorry to talk over you, but we're sort of out of time. I'm going to get uh, in a lot of trouble if I let you continue to talk. But thanks for being our final caller. You got the last word. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McNichol for putting this show together as well, and thanks to all of our wonderful guests, uh, Margaret Sullivan, Azar Nafisi, Sarah Kenzier, and, of course, Henry Alford. We'll be back tomorrow with the nose. Go see Dunkirk. That's what I'm going to do tonight. We'll be talking about it tomorrow. Can take it away. Watch me.